Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to look at two verses this morning from God's Word. I encourage you to have your Bibles out open in front of you. There's a pew Bible in the pew. If you didn't bring a Bible, if you're new to church, you don't know uh, maybe where to find the book of Proverbs, just ask someone next to you and follow along, because what we're most concerned about this morning is God's Word. And what he has to say. So Proverbs chapter 3. Beginning in verse 9. Verses 9 and 10. This is the living and active word of God. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will be bursting with wine. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you might glorify yourself, that you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be exalted in our sight, in our hearts, that we would rejoice and give you great thanks for all of your good gifts to us. Lord, that this would be the anthem of our lives and that People here today, maybe who are hearing this message for the first time, would be cut to the heart with the good news of the gospel, that they would respond and receive what you have to offer for us, even in your holy word, even as we've just sung. Well, Lord, we thank you for all of your generous provisions for us, even financially over the last couple of years. We praise you and we ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom to know how to steward it for your honor here and among the nations. And Lord, as we think of the call and the the duty, as it were, the responsibility to speak the truth, to do good, we do pray for the advance of the gospel in Canada. We think of our partner church in Cochrane, for Grace Church of Cochrane, and ask, Lord, that you would continue to provide for them provide for all of their needs, and help them to have a, a spirit of rejoicing in your goodness. And we think of the many needs in Canada for more churches, for more ministry, for more gospel witness, and ask that you might be pleased even to use us from here, that we would be instruments in your hands, that people might come to know and taste and see that you are good. And as you've instructed us to do, we want to pray as well for our leaders. Our leaders, as they even think of money, as they deliberate on the best ways to spend money, we ask that you would give them a spirit of soberness and wisdom, one that is actually for the common good of the people in this country. But most of all, Lord, we ask that they too would come to know and taste your goodness in the gospel. And we are aware that there are many who are suffering. There are many who have plenty here, but there are also many who are suffering in pain, who are confused and frustrated, hurting with living in this fallen world. And we ask, Lord, that you would give them comfort, even comfort now by your word. And we ask that you would help, help us to receive it. I pray that you would help me to speak what is true and edifying for these people before me today. 
and this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I want to speak with you, unsurprisingly, about the topic of money. And maybe there's some groans already going on in your heart. Oh, great. Here's another pastor who's out there to talk about money. Right? When you talk to people in the world, maybe you've thought it before. It's like, oh, churches, they're always, they're always just after your money, right? They just want more money so they can do more things. And of course, money has been abused by so-called ministries. You can think of the prosperity preachers. Think of all the ways that they swindle and essentially they steal money from people under these false pretenses of them gaining more and more wealth and blessing on the other end of it. Well, my intention this morning is not to squeeze out of you more money. All of us, we all need to be reminded, and the Bible speaks in many places about money. The Bible is not silent about money. It talks about wealth and how we are stewards of what God gives to us. That is, we are responsible to take what God gives to us and use it in a way that brings honor to him. And if you're anything like me, you, from time to time, need to be pushed or pulled in either direction. Some of us here maybe need the encouragement, the prompting, to maybe start denying ourselves a little bit more, uh, to forsake overindulgence and that temptation to love wealth and to put our trust in money, even as I prayed regarding economics, to put our trust in wealth and what it can do. Others of us, though, actually might need to learn how to receive God's good gifts, even the gift of wealth. And so that's really what I want to think about this morning. Solomon's message for us is very simple, very simple. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, and then he brings that to the close with a promise. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Well, the Proverbs, many of you are familiar with them. Many of you have many of the Proverbs memorized. They're these short, pithy statements that help us to navigate God's world according to God's word for God's glory. That's what the Proverbs do. There's these memorable statements that help us to navigate God's world according to the way that he's ordered it. One way I've heard the Proverbs explained is that the Proverbs are kind of like instructions helping us navigate God's one-way streets. And so, as we come to the Proverbs, they touch on every area of life. They teach us the art of godliness in every stage of life. So it talks here from a father to a son. So even the young ones here today, I encourage you to listen up. This is actually good stuff for you to hear. Here's a father speaking to his son, instructing him to honor the Lord from his wealth. Well, we need to think about wealth because it's an important facet of life. It's all around us, isn't it? Most of us, we spend a good portion of our lives working to gain income, don't we? You know, you work, and then you're compensated for the work that you do. Uh, We recognize that money is necessary for life. You know, the old slogan, you can't just live on love, right? We actually need money. You need money to go to the grocery store to purchase goods and services. But we also know that money is a snare. You remember Jesus saying that it's difficult for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Paul, he warns that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
Well, and there's a lot of love of money in the world, but I think there's probably a lot of love of money and a tendency towards it in us, so we've got to watch out for the snare. But money is also a great gift. It's also a great gift to be used to accomplish much good when it's channeled in the right direction, when it's invested properly, even according to the principles in God's Word. Just think of the blessings that we enjoy today, just material blessings. You can go to the doctor, you can get antibiotics if you have an infection. Well, that is a result of money that was put into research and development. And of course, as Christians, we think of how many people have come to know the Lord even through the generosity of the saints all throughout history. So we need God's wisdom to handle our wealth in a way that honors him. And that's what Solomon brings to his son. Solomon, as many of you know, he's no stranger to wealth. You can read about a summary of his net worth in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verses 13 through 28. We won't go there now. But basically, in modern-day terms, Solomon was a billionaire. You know, he had gold coming out of everywhere. He had chariots and ships and all sorts of fancy woods. He lived in the finest houses, ate the finest food, drank the finest wine. Solomon was a billionaire. And yet, Solomon, as a wise man, knew, as I said, that snare of wealth. And he knew that his son would stand to inherit that wealth. And so, as a wise father does, he anticipates what his son is going to face in this world. And in particular, he anticipates the peculiar, particular challenge that that his son, his son, is going to face because he's going to be a wealthy man. And so he reminds him of the need to honor the Lord. And so that's where we need to begin. We need to begin where Solomon begins. Solomon fixates his son's attention. He directs his son's attention, first of all, to the honor of the Lord, to the honor of of the Lord. Um, when I was driving in here this morning, this is often what happens is I'll come up with a sermon illustration based on something I see on the way in. I was driving down Deerfoot and saw a big bus, one of those tour buses, and it had plastered on the side uh, a, a big mosaic of the Rocky Mountains, and it said, let the Rockies move you. Let the Rockies move you. Well, essentially what Solomon's doing here is he's saying, let the honor of God move you. Let the glory of God, that's literally what the word means. It's translated oftentimes in the Bible as glory. Glorify the God. Let, let the glory of God move you to handle your wealth in a certain way. So we've got to begin here with the proper perspective. And of course, all of the Proverbs, they hang off of that key verse in Proverbs 1-7. The fear of of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. So you want to begin to be wise? Well, you've got to fear the Lord. You've got to have a posture of humility, independence, submission, faith in Him and His Word. But it's also the aim of life. So you see, the beginning of wisdom is fearing the Lord, but we're also aiming, we're also pursuing that God would be honored, literally that God would be made much of, even in the way that we handle our finances. See, it's interesting, as Solomon talks of wealth, when we think of the glory of God, we can actually think of it in terms of wealth, in terms of a currency. 
What is God's value? What is his weight? If you were to put him on a scale, you know, like the old, old school way of determining value, you put scale, see if it goes there, and you've got to equal it out, right? That's equal value. What is God's weight? What is his value? Well, it's beyond anything comparable in this world. We, we see little glimpses of it. We see glimpses of it in the mountains. The mountains can move us to rejoice in the glory of God. We see glimpses of it in the generosity of parents to their children. We see glimpses of it in generosity in the church. But God's glory is a thing in and of itself. And so, as the hymn says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, only when we see and value God as he truly is, not as we want him to be, we're we're not projecting our ideas onto who God is and what his glory is like, but we're submitting to who is he? Who is the Lord? The one true and living God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel. We're fixating on that because that then shapes everything we do. It is then not the Rockies that move us, though they can in a sense, but ultimately it is the weight, the value of God that moves us to handle our wealth in a certain way. See, wealth and worship are inseparable because the way we use our wealth reveals what we believe about God's worth, his weight. Now, I think it's also important, and it's wise, for Solomon to start here with the honor of the Lord because it it helps to remind his son and it helps to remind us about the things that money can't buy. You can go, you can buy certain things with money. It's a currency. You can trade with it, get goods and services. But there are certain things money can't buy. You all know that, right? Money can't buy you love, right? Well, Solomon's very clear with his son here that Solomon's son is not to be using his money as a way to enter into the kingdom of God. You'll notice there in verse 9, the word LORD in all caps. And when you see the word LORD in all caps in the Bible, you remember this is speaking of the one true and living God, his personal name revealed to Moses at the burning bush, revealed to Israel many times. This is the fact that Solomon and his son are in this covenant with God already. Solomon's not saying, you honor the Lord by, you know, paying him off. By paying him off to get into his good favor. No, he's saying, he is the Lord. He is your Lord. Therefore, honor him. Honor him with what he's given you. That's, That's really important because all sorts of religions, all sorts of religions, Roman Catholicism, Buddhism, you know, you name it. Most religions in the world, they they all emphasize that you need to contribute before God is going to give you something in return. And in fact, if we think in those terms, and if you're thinking in those terms, maybe you're new here, you need to consider that that's actually very dishonoring. That's actually very dishonoring to the Lord. You consider someone like Elon Musk, right? You think of someone like him, the immense amount of wealth, something like 150 or 160 billion is his net worth, last I heard. 
You know, if someone, if you had all of that and you gave it all to the Lord, you gave it all to him, would he be any more accepting of you because of your sin? No. Because we don't understand the weight, the value of God in comparison with the ugliness of our sin. You can't pay God off. I'm, rem- I'm reminded of uh, in Acts chapter 8 where Peter, you remember, he confronts Simon the magician. Simon the magician who thought, oh, well, I see these apostles and people doing all sorts of miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, what do I have to do? What, how much do I have to pay you to get the Holy Spirit? And Simon rebukes him and says, you can't buy God. You can't buy him. You have the wrong view. It's dishonoring if you think that I can somehow pay God off on my own. Charles Spurgeon, he's always good for a, a line or two. I've got a couple of them in here. Charles Spurgeon, he writes, A hammer of gold will not open the gate of heaven. Money opens many of the gates of earth, for bribery is rife, but it has no power in the world to come. Money is more eloquent than ten members of parliament, but it cannot prevail with the great judge. So if you're here today and you're thinking of, well, God just needs more money, that's how he's going to get happy with me, that's how I'm going to become one of his people, you need to remember, no, 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 God is not a God like you think he is. He is not like the false gods out there. He gives freely. He gives freely of his grace to undeserving sinners. See, we cannot and we will not handle wealth in a way that honors the Lord until we come to see the value of God. The value of God, who he is. We're not going to respond appropriately. We'll, We'll either use our wealth to try to buy our way into his favor, which is dishonoring, or we will just carry on like he's of no concern and we'll just hoard and be selfish and indulgent and start to worship and trust in wealth. Now as we think about honoring the Lord with our wealth, that's, that's what I want to focus on mainly is how is it then that we honor the Lord from this wealth that he gives us? I want us to consider two primary responses that then I think bring honor to the Lord, and I'll show you from the scriptures why I think that's true. The first is, we honor the Lord by gladly receiving the wealth from his generous hands. We honor the Lord by gladly receiving the wealth that he generously gives. What do we have that we have not received? Our very lives, not to mention our capacities, our skills to even generate wealth, these come from the hand of God. Just even thinking in kind of concrete material terms, right? The fact that you can work, that you have a job, that you have health able to do it, that you have a mind that's able maybe to to think of a business plan that can generate wealth. All of this is from the Lord. You don't get to take credit for it. And we need to be reminded, as Moses reminds Israel in Deuteronomy 8, he says, beware, beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, 
that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Any ability, any power that you have that even brings in wealth as a result, this is the Lord's doing. Now, just think about it for a minute. So if God makes you wealthy, maybe he gives you the capacity, he puts you in a position providentially, in a place in the world, in a family, where you've got lots of money, you've got lots of wealth, your net worth is, is fairly high. If God makes you wealthy, how should you respond? How should you respond? You know, it's common to hear in what's commonly referred to as the woke culture, right? Oh, well, you're supposed to feel guilty about any kind of privilege that you have, right? They want you to feel guilty. Is, is that the proper response? No. What's the proper response? It's gratitude, right? It's gratitude, Lord, I didn't deserve this. This is not for me. This isn't what, what I did. At the very best, I'm, I'm a secondary cause. You're the primary cause of all that I have, all that I am. It's gratitude. Be thankful in all circumstances. See, there's a, a learning to be content when we have little, but Paul also talks about learning to be content when he's got lots. We actually need to learn the skill of both of those. It's a secret but the Spirit can teach it to us. See, Israel was a constant recipient of the undeserved generosity of the Lord, and yet often their response was one of grumbling, of complaining, of thinking, ah, the Lord's holding out on us. It would have been better back in Egypt. You know, back there we had all the good food at least. Here in the wilderness it's just manna. Well, that's not the proper response to the Lord's blessings. Whatever he gives or whatever he doesn't give. But even as we think of, of the Lord's generosity to Israel and as Solomon's son was to be thinking as he thinks on the name of the Lord, thinking back to the deliverance from Egypt and God's provisions in the wilderness and bringing his people into land, all of these generous gifts that God gave to his undeserving, grumbling people, even those things are mere shadows. They're mere shadows of God's generosity. They're real, but they're shadows. We see... God's generosity most clearly where? Of course, we see it in the incarnate life of Jesus Christ. Paul spells this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is a good verse to mark down, even as you're thinking of well. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let me read that again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Pastor Rob talked about the riches of the Son of God and the fellowship and the, the pure fellowship, the pure enjoyment that the Son enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit. Though he was rich, Yet for your sake, your sake, think about you. Think about all your sins. Think about all the things that you've committed, all the sins that you've thought, all the lustful thoughts you've had, all the greed, all the selfishness, all the temptation to indulge your passions, all of those things, yet for your sake, your sake, 
he became poor. That you by his poverty might become rich. See, Jesus, he is the only son of Solomon, the only king who perfectly fulfilled that command to honor the Lord from your wealth. And he fulfilled it in ways that Solomon just only saw in shadow forms in the Old Testament. We were not just poor. We were, we were miserable, indebted wretches. It's not just that we had you know, oh, we had a little bit in our spiritual tank, a little bit of morality. Yeah, we made some mistakes, a little bit, and God kind of had to top it off. No, no, no. You had nothing, and in fact, you were in the negative, spiritually speaking. Your account, your net worth was negative righteousness, negative, under judgment, and deserving of it. And yet, through the one who became poor, he makes us rich. Which, rich beginning with a status, a declaration of our standing before God as as righteous as he, all of his perfections, even including the obedience to this command, his perfect obedience here, that becomes credited to you. And more than that, he even gives you the riches of the gift of his spirit, which enables you to walk in a wa- manner that is pleasing to him. I mean, we, we could go on just talking about the riches of the generosity of God. And all of this he did willingly, joyfully, joyfully. It wasn't like, uh, I guess I got to go down and save those miserable riches. No, no, no. He desired it. He willed it. He wanted it. He was eager and joyful to honor the Lord in giving himself for those who couldn't save themselves, sinners like you and me. Friends, as we think of letting the Rockies move us, you need to let the glory of the generous God move you. Move you to gratitude, but also to learning to gratefully receive it and rejoice in it. Rejoice in the good gifts. See, Christian, what this means, I don't know the state of your actual bank account. I don't know the actual state of your bank account, But the Christian's portfolio is one that is immensely wealthy and undeservedly so. Your portfolio as a Christian is one of richness because God has given to us all that we need for life and godliness. So friends, brothers and sisters, learn to gladly receive God's generous gift. First, in receiving Christ. Maybe maybe you need to today, here, receive Christ for the first time, to recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt, you've got nothing, your net worth is negative, and so you need to call upon and receive the riches that only Christ can provide, namely himself. But then, Christian, learn to rejoice in these good gifts. You don't need to feel guilty. Yes, we have a passion to see other people come to know the Lord, but you don't need to feel guilty that the Lord has called you and saved you. Rejoice in it. And not just in these things, but we can think of all the common blessings 
that come from his hand as well. Rejoice in the fact that if God has given you a godly spouse, give thanks. Children, give thanks. God has given you a church family here, give thanks. Yeah, we're imperfect, but it's his good gift. Has God given you the opportunity recently to maybe relax the summer, take a vacation? That's a good gift from him. Receive it. Receive it gladly. Give thanks. Thank you, Lord. I don't deserve it, but I'm so thankful. And now I'm going to use it for your honor. All that refreshment that I gained, I feel kind of rejuvenated. How can I use that now to serve others? That's the way it works. Richard Baxter, he wrote, We need to guard our lives against the love of riches and worldly cares. All love for earthly goods, however, is not sin. Their sweetness is a drop of his love, and they have his goodness imprinted on them. They kindle our love for him as love tokens from our dearest friend. Loving them is a duty, not a sin. Loving them is a duty, not a sin. Yes, watch out for overindulgence, temptations to idolatry, to love money more than God, but learn to rejoice in the good things God gives us. But as I said, that, it doesn't end there. God gives, but we also honor the Lord from our wealth by gladly giving ourselves for the honor of God and the good of others. That's the second point or third point. I don't even know what point I'm on anymore. Third point, I think. Gladly giving ourselves for the honor of God and the good of others. So we learn to receive and then we give. Generous. We're imitators of God in that way. Solomon there, you see, he instructed his son to bring in the first fruits of all your produce. Now, for many of us, it's kind of like first fruits. What do you mean by that? How does that apply to us kind of thing, right? Well, the first fruits, they were the first and the best part of the herd and the harvest. So every Israelite, even including the king, was required to bring the first and best of their produce to the temple, to the priests, and devote it to the Lord. So in Exodus 23, verse 19, God instructs Israel, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So the point here in bringing this first fruits offering was that it was acknowledging that everything comes from the hand of God, just as we've been talking. Everything belongs to him. The fields are his. The herds are his. The, the fruit is his. All of it's his. And he gives it. So we're bringing the first and the best, and we're devoting to it. And it was also, though, an act of faith, wasn't it? Well, the harvest hasn't been brought in. I was out getting my annual therapy on the combine for a few weeks. Well, the harvest isn't in. There's only been a portion taken off. And it might be the best portion. It might, the rest of it might get rained on. It might get hailed out. Well, you're trusting the Lord to provide for what you need for tomorrow. So I think just very practically, as you think of maybe strategies for giving, I don't know how you give. I wouldn't say that this is necessarily law, how you have to do it, but a good principle maybe is as you think of giving in the church, even in terms of your finances, is not to maybe wait until the end of the year and see, well, well how much did I actually get, and then I'll, I'll determine how much I give. But to give regularly, incrementally, and trustingly to the Lord throughout the year. Tr trusting Him, oh, maybe I don't have a job next month. I don't know, but I'm going to trust you to provide for me. One of the best historical examples 
of this giving himself in faith was George Mueller. Many of you read George Mueller, Delighted in God. Uh, he lived during the thick of the Industrial Revolution in England, and he was moved to, uh, to care for the orphans that were all over. Uh, many days they did not know where the food would come from, but God always provided for them. One of the specific uh, times that the Lord answered those prayers and provided, uh, the kids were sitting there, their plates and their bowls and their cups were empty. It was breakfast time. And Mueller prayed, Dear Father, we thank you for what thou art going to give us to eat. And literally, literally, this is not made up. This is actually what happened. Moments later, like just a few seconds later, there was a knock at the door and the baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I, I couldn't sleep last night. And the Lord, for whatever reason, laid it on my heart to bring some breakfast to you. So I, I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread, and I want to give it to you. The Lord provided the bread. And then, only a few moments after that, there was another knock at the door. And it was the milkman who had said his cart had literally broken down right in front of the orphanage. He said, I would like to donate the milk here. It's just going to go to waste. I'd like to donate the milk to the orphanage today. Friends, do, do you have that kind of confidence in the Lord? That, that trusting in His future grace, His future provisions, that's what's going to be able to free us up to just to give of ourselves, to give from our wealth, because we can trust Him. He's good. He's generous. His generosity doesn't just kind of on and off, on and off. He is always generous towards his people. Now, as we think of the first fruits, we also I think, need to think of it in terms of how the New Testament interprets this first fruits offering. How does the New Testament think about it? Well, if you're familiar and you read, you come to the New Testament, you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of Jesus, speaking of the resurrected Lord, Jesus as the first fruits, meaning He's the first and the best of the resurrection, and there's going to be a whole harvest. All those who believe in him, they're going to be raised from the dead like he is. The Lord's going to guarantee that harvest. So Christ is the first fruits, but also, notice what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, but we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits." the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, those who are saved by God are firstfruits. And then how do we apply this? How do we honor the Lord by giving of our firstfruits? Very simply, you give of yourself. You give, you are the firstfruits in Christ. Those believing in Christ you give of yourself. You spend yourself. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Right? So what we see here is that our generosity includes far more than just wealth. The Lord owns all of us. He owns all of us. The Christian must consider then the entire portfolio and steward what God gives. One author writes, money is just one piece of a large puzzle for how we can use every gift, every opportunity, every relationship, every dollar to proclaim the glory of God with every minute he gives us on this earth. Your job as a Christian is to assess 
every opportunity you have in life. Maybe that's a good exercise for you this afternoon going this week. Assess all that the Lord's given you. Not just your money, but all that he's given you. Your health, the relationships, the church, the giftings. Many of which can benefit your money, benefit from your money and spend every bit of you for God's glory in this life. Now very practically, as we think of then offering, giving generously, honoring the Lord and doing so, it's sometimes hard to know where to invest those things, right? Like, like, where do I put it, right? In the Old Testament, it was easy. You just took it to the temple, took it to the priests. They offer it to the Lord right there. But we don't go to the temple now, do we? At least I hope you don't. If you do, come talk to me later. We don't go to the temple. So, so where do we invest it? Where do we bring it? Where do we give our wealth in ways that bring glory to God? Well, God's word, thankfully, has some counsel for us here. This is just a, just a couple, couple ways that we think of where to invest our wealth. First, first, very importantly, we honor the Lord by giving ourselves generously to our families. We honor the Lord by giving ourselves generously to our families. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, your wife, your children, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Have you ever considered the negative you know, witness of not providing for your family? Even the unbelievers do that. Even they know that's the most basic obligation that everybody has, providing for your family. And Jesus, in fact, you remember in Mark 7, he condemned the Pharisees because they were saying, oh, well, you know, we don't have any money to help our parents out. We've devoted all of it to the temple. And Jesus is like, you guys have missed out on it. You're called to honor your father and your mother. So friends, do you want to adorn the gospel well? Do you want to adorn the gospel? Do you want to be a good witness? Do you want to think strategically for missions? Then lavish your wife, your children, your grandchildren with generous, thoughtful, good quality gifts. That's actually a way that you can honor the Lord. I'm not talking about selfish indulgence, idolatry, promoting materialism. You know, you don't have to blow the toy budget just because, well, you know, little Joey over there, he's got these toys, so our kids need to keep up with him. No, no, no. But you can feel free to give generously. In fact, you ought to give generously. Good, generous gifts to your family. Our homes should be places of quality generosity. You say, but, but couldn't that money be used for missions? There's people starving. There's people dying, going to hell. Isn't there a more strategic way? Well, may I submit to you that actually a healthy marriage is a good thing for missions? A healthy marriage is a good thing for missions. A healthy home is a good thing for missions. Having your children see the generosity of their father, it's, it's a way to adorn the gospel. The, the home is the first mission field, and so we should adorn the gospel by this lavish generosity at home. So you can give good gifts without feel like you're feeling like you're robbing from the Lord. You can give those good gifts. Doug Wilson, a 
a polarizing figure in many ways, but he put it this way, I think, quite well. He said, put your, bid, your kids to bed, secure, well-fed, and warm. Thank God for it from the low bottom of your heart and plot how to extend that wonderful grace to others. So our generosity does not end in the home, but it begins there. So there's generosity in the home. Well, where else? Well, once that obligation is taken care of, the next place that we honor the Lord is by giving ourselves generously for the good of our neighbors who live in proximity to us and especially to our family in the church. In Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, like the, good, like the Good Samaritan, Christians ought to do good. If there's an opportunity to do good, even in terms of material assistance to somebody who's next to you, literally maybe your next-door neighbor, thinking of the people that are right there in front of you or beside you, then take that opportunity and do good. Right? But there's a special responsibility that especially is especially important to those who are of the household of faith. That is, believers, the church, I like how one guy put it. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name. I was listening to a message and heard it once. He said, lots of people want to change the world, but no one wants to help mom with the dishes. Right? Lots of people want to go full out. Let's go overseas and let's help those people over in Calcutta or wherever. And I'm not saying it's a bad impulse, but then you've got like, all these opportunities to give of yourself right here, including kids, your mom with the dishes. Right? It's, it's the principle of proximity. Who has the Lord put in your life right now? Do good. Be generous. Give of yourself. Your money, your time, your energy, your thoughts, your prayers, all of these things for the good of these people. And in particular, for the good of the church. So I, I want to think about how then... As we think about our church here collectively, how can we honor the Lord from the wealth that he's given us? First thing I'd say is we need to take care of the needs here. We've got to take care of the needs here. It's a principle that you see there in Galatians. You see it elsewhere. It is the managing your household well aspect. We've got to manage this household of faith well. It does no good Believe me, it does no good. And you can go talk to missionaries overseas who are tired of unhealthy churches sending money, support, short-term missions over to them. Because all it does is make a big mess of things. If the church is not healthy here, what makes us think that just sending our money elsewhere is going to actually do it any better? Because the likelihood is probably you're going to be investing in things that are not great to begin with, Right? things that are promoting more on health. So we've got to take care of the needs here. We've got needs for continuing discipleship of believers. Part of the mission is seeing believers not just, uh, people not just saved, but people grow in the faith, maturing. There's people in our own congregation who need assistance in financial ways. Uh, we've got building needs. Uh, we, we, we may need to, we've got to pay down our mortgage. We've got maintenance, even potential future renovations to meet the demands of a growing church. In case you haven't noticed, the church has changed. The church has grown. That's a great thing. Well, how are we going to steward it well? 
to fulfill our calling, we may, down the road, need to hire some additional staff. And some could say, oh, well, that could be better spent. You know, we could just do the minimal thing, live the minimalist life here, and, and just make sure that more people are saved. Well, as I said, I think promoting healthy churches is honoring to the Lord, using our wealth, the wealth of even the resources of you, those who are first fruits. You heard it announced. Uh, just the need for, for nursery volunteers. Maybe we're sounding like a broken record, but that's a great way for you to offer, to spend yourself for the good of others. Giving parents an opportunity then to kind of dial in and listen to the message for an hour. So, so I, I think these are ways that we, we manage our household well here. That's actually honoring to the Lord. And then thinking strategically beyond that. We do want to support missions. The elders, Clint has mentioned, uh, Pastor Johnny Vettel in Sweden. Well, the elders are wanting to prayerfully consider even maybe ways that we can support our brothers and sisters in a very similar situation as we are here in, in a secular, non-Christian uh, culture that is hostile to Christianity and, and essentially churchless. So, so we're not saying we're just focusing on ourselves. But I think we're, we're emphasizing that a stewardship of the resources we have means managing what we have well right here and making sure people are healthy and strong and equipped well. As we think of then this dual response of learning to receive and then give, Charles Spurgeon came to mind this week. Clint and I were talking. Um, I'll get Michael and Jared to send out a link, uh, a link this week on an article I read. Spurgeon, they kind of calculated up how much money, if Spurgeon would have sold all of the resources that he created, you know, if he would have sold them at fair market value, how much would have he been worth? Well, it was like tens of millions. I mean, this guy would have been a multimillionaire, and yet Spurgeon, he gave back to the church. He basically funded the pastor's college by himself. He basically, he, he gave money to start up and support dozens of orphanages, all sorts of mercy ministries in London, proclamation of the gospel, caring for physical needs. He was a, amazingly generous. He gave. But did you know that Spurgeon also, he also vacationed in the south of France? Right? He vacationed, that's, that's where the rich people go. And he, it wasn't just like he popped by there for a day. He would spend weeks and months there, sometimes for the sake of his health. He, he knew how to dine on fine food. He received top-notch health care. And when Spurgeon traveled, he often traveled first class. One biographer recounts an event once when Purgeon, Spurgeon was stepping onto the first-class carriage of a train, or, or another preacher was stepping onto the train, and he saw Spurgeon stepping onto the first-class area. And this other preacher, he bragged to Spurgeon and said, I'm traveling third class, saving the Lord's penny. And Spurgeon, in classic Spurgeon language, said to him, I'm traveling first class, saving the Lord's servant. Now, do not hear this as your pastors saying, we'd like to travel first class. Yeah? I mean, if you want to put us in first class, it'd be fine. But we're not saying that that's necessarily the best stewardship of wealth. My point here is that Spurgeon was generous 
He was generous because he knew the generosity of God, and yet he knew how to receive and enjoy God's good gifts with a clear conscience. And of course, the greatest example of that is our Lord. He could, he could go to the wedding, and he could dine on the finest wine. He even made the finest wine, right? And yet, he had nowhere to lay his head. He was the prime example of self-denial for the honor of God and the good of others. Now, of course, we spent a lot of time talking about honoring the Lord with your wealth, and I just want to conclude here real quickly because I know everybody's hot. With the promise, Solomon motivates his son, first with the honor of the Lord at the top, but then there's also, below it, this motivation by this promise of great reward. You see it there in verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Those who honor the Lord from the wealth that he gives with grateful hearts, generous hands, well, they can expect future blessing and reward. Now, of course, the prosperity preachers, they, they take and twist this and abuse this, but don't let them steal the preciousness of this promise. It's a precious promise, yeah, first and foremost for the king of Israel under the old covenant, but it, the language here echoes the exact same language that Jesus and the apostles use to motivate generosity among God's people. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, we are primarily motivated by the honor of God, but God is honored for eternity and continuing to give gifts to his people. And so we can rejoice in the promise of the future. There is reward for those who live faithfully. It's not how you enter into heaven, but it's an undeserved overflowing, continual generosity that God's people will experience when they see him and are made like him. One day when Christ returns, every believer in Jesus will enter into the full, embodied, spiritual and material riches that have been purchased for us by the one who became poor, that we might become rich in all things. Yeah, sometimes the Lord does give more to those who give, and, and, and oftentimes that's the case, in fact. The Lord gives more to those who give because it brings glory to him. But there's no guarantee. There's no formula. Except to say, there is the guarantee of the promise of the future. In heaven, in the new creation, our bodies will be perfect. The wine is going to flow freely. The food will never end. You remember that image in Revelation? The street is paved with gold. Everything in Revelation 21, 22 screams the highest quality, the highest joy for God's people. We're going to enjoy a continual stream of gifts that come from the generous, gracious God who gave us life now and will give us all things then. 
So, prepare yourself even for heaven now. Prepare yourself for heaven today by learning to receive and enjoy God's good gifts with gratitude. Because that's what you're going to be doing for eternity. You're going to be receiving and rejoicing in God's good gifts. All of them. Material, spiritual, everything. But watch the overindulgence and temptation to idolatry. Remember what Jesus said, that moth and rust destroy. The psalmist said, wealth, when a person dies, it grows wings. It flies away. If you're putting your confidence in wealth, it's putting in something that's destined to fail. So why not use that wealth for the honor of God by, yes, enjoying it, but then giving it, even giving of yourselves, the first fruits, for the honor of God and the good of others. Let's pray. So, Father, as we have received the food from your word, we ask that you would fill us with gratitude for all your good gifts. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Spirit who has been given to us, even as another part of the first fruits. And so, help us to keep our eyes fixed on the future, to help us most of all to keep our eyes fixed on you and your value that we might be thankful, generous servants. And may you be honored even through the way that we steward what you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand with us as we conclude with our final song. Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, Ye all else do me save that thou art thou my best of my help I not itching nor sleeping thy presence my life be thou my wisdom and thou my true word i ever with thee and thou with me lord thou my great father i thy true son thou in me dwelling and i with thee one Riches I heed not, nor men's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. I, King of heaven, my treasure thou art. I, King of heaven, thy victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall. 
still be my vision, O ruler, no. If you have not come to know the generosity of God and received all the riches in Christ, I encourage you not to leave here today before you consider all that he has offered. He is a generous God, a generous Savior. Come talk to one of the elders. Talk to somebody beside you. For those who are rich in Christ, have been given everything, hear this from 2 Corinthians. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Fellow believer, you are rich. He's given you all that you need. And now you are freed up to go and to give generously to others. Go in peace. You're dismissed.